Hi, you're listening to the first ever episode of Two Turkeys. This is basically where I interview my friends and things they like doing. We got Turkey One, Peter Karen, Turkey Two, Safer Thun. Hello. Uh, yeah, Safer Thun and G. Uh, it's not that hard. It's three syllables. Alright, Thajudin, as he likes to say. Yeah, exactly. I first met Safer last October when we were doing construction on my kitchen. Him and my friend Alex came over. He's a nice guy, normal guy, but as I came to know him, he's a pretty nice guy. And I realized that not only would he make for a really great guest on a podcast, he would also make for a really nice tenant. Say louder. It's got a very soft voice. I'm voluntarily here, and I'm enjoying this podcast so far. Thanks, Safer. So, I actually have a couple questions for Safer, just to have him on as a guest and see what's up with him. This is obviously uh, pre-recorded for the meeting, but I did start this out of a project pathway from Toastmasters International, so big shout out to them. Thanks, Toastmasters, for really helping me get my public speaking game in check. You guys rock. Safer is very notably a mellow guy, so I kind of devised a couple questions for him to see kind of how mellow and like relaxed he might answer them, but kind of want to dive into the psychology of it all. So Safer, living with me, can you describe what it's like to live with Peter Karen? Um... So, uh, Peter's a pretty interesting guy. Um, the way Alex first described you to me was uh, pretty much Alex's personality, but on an eight ball of coke. And he meant that in a respectful way. And I think I agree with that, in that um, both of you are very ambitious people. Um, and the work ethic that you have, especially... It's just something I haven't seen on probably most of other people I've just interacted with in life. And you're just drive to work on stuff you're passionate about. It's very uh, unique and obviously above average. And um, I think that's something that contrasts to my personality because I'm a very mellow guy. And sometimes I think perhaps I'm too lazy sometimes. So... I think it's a nice contrast having somebody like Peter around and living with them. Oh, Saver, I really appreciate those. Those were really lovely words. Thanks for going into that with me. I think, honestly, after living with you a period of time, I think you might be a little harsh on yourself. Generally, you work with me on the project, so I think, um, yeah, it's we're, we're, yes, we're putting in the effort together at this point, so I think uh, maybe there's a certain aspect of that where you're doing a very good job and... I really appreciate all the help that you... Of course. Give. Thank you, yeah. So, what you guys probably don't know about Safer is that he's a big fan of boxing. So, Safer, I have a couple of boxing-oriented questions for you. Um, okay. Full press conference here. So, professional boxing, what are your thoughts, and do you have a favorite boxer? Thoughts on just professional boxing in general? Yes. I mean, it's a very broad question, but I guess I might be in the minority here, but I support it, right? And I think it's a, it's a good sport, but um, 
I guess the one caveat is I don't think people should jump into trying professional boxing as with like maybe other sports just because the risk of long-term damage to your body is much higher than other sports I'd say if you go into this professionally if you are just if you're a enthusiast and you just like the sport of boxing uh I guess just stick with like headgear and just don't go too hard there's no need to just to get all the benefits from it and uh favorite boxer um it might be a bit cliche I guess Floyd Mayweather he's just like I guess the pinnacle of like technical prowess he's not really the strongest boxer or um obviously or known for his knockout power even though he obviously has a lot of knockouts but just his pure technical skill sets him apart and just shows um perhaps like perfection is possible in a sport as complicated as boxing it's very interesting to see that could you go into that how like um could you just describe a certain combination that Floyd Mayweather does that you thought was so incredibly perfect and beautiful? Please, like, explode the moment. Like, was it some the way he backed up before he went forward? Well, I don't know if I can name a specific combination, but uh, I guess one of the things he is really known for is his, uh, it's called, like, the Philly shell defense, where basically um, you're using your shoulder to roll the punches that come to you so let's say someone somebody throws a hook you're going to move with the momentum of that punch so that that hook lands probably on a very precise part of your shoulder and you spin with the punch so that it using the opponent's momentum to throw off the punch it's obviously a very complicated tech it's not maybe complicated but very hard to uh do i guess you know when you're someone's trying to punch you in the face especially in a professional match um and he's one of the best boxers who could uh, execute this technique well and just seeing that done it's just especially seeing it in slow motion it's just a very beautiful surreal thing to see in such a chaotic sport perfect perfect thank you for explaining that safer i appreciate that and um for anybody who didn't have the visual for it uh when he was saying the precise point where the opponent's like punch lands was the upper shoulder so it was roughly and then there was a there was a spin away so like almost like back facing the opponent yes almost yeah yeah that deep wow it's covering your face at the same time too it's a very interesting interesting technique yeah yeah it's an interesting definitely yeah my next actually one of my other questions dedicated to boxing actually focused around how there was, I believe, a matchup between Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao in 2015. It was supposed to be the um, the fight of the century. Yeah. Do you remember watching that fight? Um, I didn't see the full fight, but I did see bits and pieces of it. And I do remember that many of my friends watching it. And there was a lot of hype around it at the time just because both boxers, um, they are probably both regarded as the best boxers at the time possibly in the history of boxing um and obviously there was a rivalry between the fans but <clears throat> i think of like the big consensus at, at least among my friends was that the fight was boring because it wasn't like the typical like i guess very violent fights you see in boxing or that you want to see um and that's because floyd mayweather is so technically uh good at the sport 
Uh, many of the punches that Pacquiao threw, even though he's one of the fastest boxers, it didn't affect uh, Mayweather. So um, it came down to points. There was no knockouts or anything like that. So yeah, I recall. A boring fight. From what I watched, I think I remember I saw Manny, pa- uh, Manny Pacquiao throwing what looked like a lot more punches. Yeah. And it did look like Floyd was staving him off just with like a, a straight arm, basically. And from my point of view, I was a little, I was, I thought that Manny actually maybe should have been given the benefit of the fight just because of the effort he put in. Right, but I mean, a lot of people say that, but you know, it's ultimately it's a game of points, right? So even though he threw a lot of punches, how many of them actually landed, and then how many of them actually did damage? And then that's what the judges are going to count, right? So even though it looks like he's putting... He might actually be putting in more effort, sure. But is no more impressive for a boxer to put in less effort and still win with less damage on him, too? So that's, like, you know, ultimately what it comes down to. Just, like, the little things you're doing, their techniques. Um, especially if you start training in boxing, you really start to appreciate, like, these hard maneuvers that they're doing. Um, and I think using like a point system like that kind of highlights those versus if it's just a damage game um if it was possible to measure that that would kind of be brushed under the rug right you could just be the more buff guy throw a few haymakers right and still end up winning um and so my takeaway from that but i mean there's sports like the ufc that i guess kind of go along with that and those are definitely gaining traction because they're more i guess like submission or more uh i guess less yeah damage oriented i guess less of the fights go the distance i don't know if that's true or not but um and those are gaining traction right but even those i mean they still use a point system and end of the day and those are very technically like rich sports still so i think they'll always be necessary that's a good point. Thanks for answering all those questions, Safer. I actually do have a couple more in the way of boxing. I was kind of developing them as you were as you were talking um, because I think this is really interesting. So I guess my questions to you would go to how many hours do you think you've dedicated to the sport training-wise, personally? And you can actually, I, I, I wouldn't mind if you kind of went into it, kind of go into like your early career, your current, like maybe your future. Well, no, don't, not quite future, but like how many hours do you think you've given into it and what you've learned from your time in it? Um, hmm. Okay, interesting. So I started really getting into just learning boxing around the start of quarantine so that was like 2020 i guess early 2020 yeah so technically it's been three years but um most of that time or i mean i yeah i guess 100 percent of the time i have not been using trainers or being professionally trained it's just solely been me going on youtube reading books um even just, I guess, watching boxing matches more than before and trying to learn it. Um, So I haven't been on a fixed schedule, and that's one thing that, at least in the future, that I'm hoping could maybe become more of a routine. Um, I've been wanting to just go to the gym more, I guess, um, in general, and this might be one of the ways to accomplish that without, you know, just doing the normal, like, weightlifting. So 
Um, but that being said, so I mean, maybe since that started, I would maybe say at least two hours a week. I want to say. Oh, that's actually no. That's two? I think that's pretty accurate. I've um, seen you training at our house actually. Um. Yeah, and I guess just one of the things I like about it too is you could do it anywhere, right? So you don't really need that much equipment. You just need hands. Yeah, you just need your body and I guess an open space. So whenever I'm feeling bored or just have an open space in general, I could just start shadow boxing or just going through different yeah. moves in my head. Um but yeah, going off of that estimate, so that's what let's say let's just say an hour a week. Sure, I mean, for so three, three years. It's 150 hours. 150 hours-ish, yeah, That's so... pretty big, yeah, I mean, like, you can do a lot of things with 150 hours. Yeah, so... That's right. obviously, yeah, I mean, if I wanted to do this professionally, yeah, that's obviously nowhere near where I'd want to do. But I would definitely say that I've seen, like, progress... Like, yeah. steady progress over these years. I mean, personally, I've seen a lot of, like, I've been impressed by, like, so Safer and I recently set up a punching bag, and, like, um, there's even, what do you call the little tennis ball? Uh, I don't even know. It's, it's I guess like it's kind of like a reflex ball. So, basically, it's a tennis ball on the end of a long spring, and, like, you actually train kind of your punching technique. It's less of a powerful punch and more of kind of, like, making sure the motion's fluid, because... Your goal isn't really to kill the tennis ball. The goal is just to kind of collide with it appropriately, like in the right motion. And so Safer gave me probably about a seven-minute lesson maybe about three days ago. And uh, what was funny is um, I have no boxing experience. I do enjoy, like on my Facebook feed, maybe occasionally seeing an MMA fight which just has punching in it. It's It's not boxing punching. And the only other fighting experience I have is four years of wrestling, which is, you know, people will laugh at that if you bring that up in conversation. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. Um, so which is, it's just a completely different stance. And honestly, it's, um, it's not a different speed tactic, but like just with regards to the fact that you don't use your hands in the same kind of collision method. It was very different for me to kind of see, like, how you're supposed to kind of aim your hand to collide with the ball, whereas, like, when a wrestler goes for a double leg takedown, a leg is actually a rather big target. Here To clarify, obviously, a head's a pretty big target compared to a tennis ball, but, like, um, so long as you have the momentum, your full body's momentum kind of colliding into kind of, like, the knee for a double leg takedown, uh, you pretty much get it. Somebody's going to sprawl on you, but it's just a different collision compared to, like, a punch. Like, I don't know, like, a block and a punch is much different than a sprawl in wrestling because when you sprawl in wrestling, your your opponents, when your opponent sprawls in wrestling, their whole body weight's on top of you, so it kind of makes you think twice compared to going to get a double leg compared to throwing a punch, I suppose. Maybe a question that kind of comes to mind immediately would be, what goes through somebody, have you ever been in a boxing kind of training session where you felt like you simulated a match so thoroughly that you kind of felt like the adrenaline of the match and can you can des- can you describe kind of the situation leading up to it and then the feeling and then also how did you feel after um so th- i mean the closest thing i've done to this is just sparring another friend of mine who's been boxing longer than me um 
and he obviously knew it was my first time sparring so we both made it clear that we were gonna go light on each other so we said like 20 percent power which is just like i guess a vague metric um but that being said like even like just like the few minutes leading up to it there were like a few i guess pre-fight jitters um like if it was a real fight obviously it would be much greater than this but there was still something there and i guess a bit of a adrenaline rush beforehand um but yeah once you start fighting you just kind of get into the flow of things you stop uh i guess being scared because you have to if you're scared you're not gonna be able to think and put all this training and thinking you've been practicing on before into use right so um you're kind of forced to just think on what's in front of you um yeah and i guess just empty your mind besides the opponent in front of you and what they're doing and then uh how do you counter against that move um if we were going multiple rounds I, which i think we did yet like so in the next round um how am i going to react to this one punch he keeps throwing should i pretend like i can't handle it this round and then uh pull the correct dodge for it next round that i know um what to do like currently um so yeah and then after i guess the fight was over we both got a few um i guess like good hits on each other and then i guess that was really the first time that i've been hit in a boxing match like that and i don't know it was it was obviously at the time of the punch it doesn't feel that great but afterwards seeing like you being able to take that punch and just keep fighting afterwards it's an interesting feeling like i guess you feel better afterwards from it it's pretty interesting yeah, yeah. So I guess I had a couple of questions that came to mind, but I'm actually, that was a really good explanation. I really appreciate that you brought in the jitters. One of the questions I think that came up the most in my mind when you were going through the explanation was probably how you were talking about you got the multiple rounds. Yeah. And something I remember about going multiple rounds in a wrestling match was that it was tiring. Yes. Yeah. So like, what is like, so... Specifically, the part that was tiring in a wrestling match was actually thighs and lower back. But it's a different stance for boxing, so I could imagine, is it like shoulders? Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of shoulders. Um, your legs are definitely uh, going to be burning. Um, if you're moving around a lot, your calves are going to be um, pretty worked just because uh, you usually don't want to stay on your heels in a boxing stance you want to stay on your toes the whole time and jumping around and when you're throwing jabs too you could be moving every time you're throwing a punch so your legs get pretty tired um and then after that yeah probably your shoulders and in in theory when you throw a punch you're using your whole body so i guess in a way it's a whole body workout so slowly your body just starts to i guess degrade over time as the rounds go on and you just have to fight through it that's pretty crazy no i like that explanation i think that's very accurate i think the degradation degradation is actually probably one of the best ways to explain kind of fatigue and in a lot of sports but i agree when you were showing me the boxing technique and the way to throw a proper punch it was very it's much more involved than it looks because it does kind of involve this squat pivot full power and then the squeeze even the squeeze at the end kind of includes like a hand strength aspect so that everything's flexed right at the end um (laughs) i know 
Uh, moving actually out of boxing, probably, um, just to keep people a little bit more informed about you, they probably just think you're a boxer. So what you do professionally and what you went to college for was to become a chemical engineer. So I guess, um, maybe a more fun question would be kind of like, what was your hardest class in college and what did you do to overcome the struggles of it? Um hardest class hardest class might have been uh, I guess it was like fluid dynamics and like mass and heat transport um, and yes that class was not very good um, I don't know if I told you I had a kind of traumatizing experience in that class because uh um, so there was a policy in the class. The professor knew that this is one of the hardest classes for our degree in general. So his policy was um, there's no curve on the tests, but if you send in corrections after you get the graded test back, you get half of the test points back on your test. So that's a significant amount of points, right? So um, it was a pretty good policy. Um, the only caveat is you have to go to his office hours and ex- walk through the questions with them and make sure... Um, you just didn't copy the solutions right from online. Um, so what ended up happening for me was I had to correct two of these tests at the same time with him. Um, and I stayed off literally all night going through um, the solutions. Um, I tried to recite them. I was in the library all night just learning. And I go to his office hours. I'm the last person there. Um, and I just completely blank out. I couldn't answer, like, the first question. He's just like, okay, um, just explain this question. And to be fair, he's, he's regarded as one of, like, the nicest, like, cheeriest professors. But then um, this is the first time I w- went to his office hours, too. It was just a completely different person, and it kind of threw me off. Um, so he just immediately opens my test. He's like, all right explain this and I just blanked out and I couldn't explain what I had written on the page he's like all right we'll go to number two explain this and I couldn't explain that either and then he's like all right is it going to be like this for everything and I'm like yeah pretty much and he's like all right you can get out and then I didn't get the test points back for that test I'm sorry so yeah so uh uh because of that I did have to end up retaking that class um, but when I retook that class, I made sure, um, obviously I've, I'm uh, reviewing the stuff that I've learned before, but to really just sit down and study and see what's actually happening in this class. And I got an A in that class when I retook it. So, oh, congratulations. Yeah. Happy ending to it, but yeah, I'm still, uh, I'm a different person because of that. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's good. Do you, uh, do you feel like a lot of what you learned in college transfers over to what you do at um, your place of work? Um, no, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. continue. Actually, yeah. <laughs> it's actually a common topic amongst uh, my coworkers, just that, uh, I mean, we, this was mentioned in college, too, that everything we're learning might be the peak of, like, the difficulty, at least... Um, in uh, compared to what you'll be doing in your career at least in the beginning um but this was like this is i would say probably 90 percent of the material we learned has not shown up in my day-to-day work it's been more just the communication skills um 
I guess perhaps problem solving skills, but um, nothing specifically that we learned um, for the most part has shown up specifically in my day to day career um, uh, work life. So I understand that it's impossible to teach everything that every job does in a college course, but perhaps there could be, I don't know, more of an emphasis on doing projects, communicating with others, leadership skills, instead of just making those things you have to do in your spare time and, um, you know, go out of your way besides class time to do, perhaps incorporating that into actual classes might be the best thing to do. Like a co-op program, for example, I think should be, you know, required for most engineering degrees, because I think that's probably one of the most useful things you're going to do compared to any coursework. I agree with that. I did do a co-op program, and I'm better for it. Did you? Did you? Did you? No, I didn't. And that's, if I had a um, internship or co-op experience like that, um, it's likely I wouldn't be here. It's I would be with that company, right? Because yeah, yeah, I'm sure the college would set me up with companies where I lived, or at least around that area. So I don't know. It could have changed my whole life. Who knows? I'm glad you can't, yeah. can't. I'm glad your college was awful and that you didn't have a co-op program because now we're together. <laughs> um, I guess moving on from that a little bit. Of, so because you're a chemical engineer, you probably have a good kind of understanding of organic chemistry, right? At some point, but it's been a while. Okay, yeah. that's okay. In that case, I guess it's got carbon. <laughs> Okay, that's a good point. In that case, I'll move on from that last question because I was going to ask you about solar cells, which I don't actually think relate to chemistry. I think solar, there's a photo, that's more of a photovoltaic effect that um, that kind of relates more to electricity. Basically, the electrons in the light excite the photoelectrons in the panel. That's a bit lost on me. I was kind of wondering if your degree went more into that. We actually didn't go into that. But we did learn it. I did hear about this somewhere. I'm trying to think what the basic concept is like. Because I know an electron has a, a negative charge. A photon probably has a negative charge. And some reason the photons excite the electrons, right? Yeah, I was just, I was wondering if, if you kind of like were like, oh, yeah, I've got this on lock. This is something I learned in one of my classes as a chemical engineer. Um... No, unfortunately not. And I wish, yeah, I wish uh, we did. I don't know, perhaps electrical engineers learn about it more. Probably a bit of that. Do you think in the future cars will have, like use solar energy to drive? Keeping in mind that currently there is a car that's coming out on the market that is claiming that it can do 40 miles a day per solar charge. Do you think that will... Even if it doesn't grow, do you think society will move towards a solution where people aren't really commuting or going anywhere more than 40 miles a day? Um, oh, okay. I didn't expect it to be the second part of the question. Um, not commuting 40 miles a day? Yeah. Do you think society is going in that direction? Uh, well, it seemed like that, I guess, in... Um, after quarantine started with um, all these remote workplaces popping up. Um, 
it it's possible i guess it might if there's no need to show up in person um perhaps you'd be able to hire talent from further away places that's potentially better you could you could just increase your uh, application pool right if you're not depending on location anymore um and if it benefits the employer like that perhaps um you know we might be moving towards more remote work positions or just making jobs that are not able to be done remotely into remote positions somehow so um and again i guess it would also be i guess more environmentally friendly and i've also heard that one of the biggest or something that you could do to significantly increase your job satisfaction rate is just decrease your commute to home um so the shorter it is the happier you tend to be just because you're closer to home right so right. um you don't have to one would be just not having to wake up earlier um but also at this at the end of the day just knowing that your home's nearby might be a just a nice feeling to have a bit less of a stress yeah less stressful and it might yeah just who knows it might translate to better job performance and then if employers realize that we might move towards pushing that in the future no i like that in fact so not only do we have the benefit of there's less of an environmental impact from driving we also have the social impact of people being happier and then we also have the productivity impact of people being happier kind of Mm -hmm. but like yeah no that was a good answer we have three benefits just from having a shorter commute and that shorter commute may be driven by better technology in the future. That would be pretty cool. Right, whatever that is. Yeah. It might just open up jobs in rural areas, too. Like, you know, there might be a lot of engineering positions in Kansas, but, you know, who wants to apply there if you're living in a big city, right? Right. But if they make it somehow remotely available, you've opened up, you know, in theory, every location, wherever you are. And... It might benefit them in the long run. Something you'll often see with people who like are crazy big into their remote jobs is they'll living in camper vans or sailboats. So that's something I've thought about. I know I've got coworkers who have thought about that. In your opinion, what are your thoughts on the nomadic lifestyle with regards to, I mean, you can remote work and you can also be wherever. Would that be something you'd do? Um, that's, interesting it might be something i want to do uh later on in life um because i guess there are some benefits in just settling down in some area just um even just putting aside family and job just really getting to know the place that you're living in um and really just uh learning about and then inevitably like i guess falling in love with the little nuance nuances about where you live whatever that may be um i think it's a nice feeling and it takes a little while to really settle down and get used to that um especially you know it might just be characteristics about the location but also the people too right there might be unique personalities different restaurants that you like whatever it is um and i guess that might be the one downside of a nomadic lifestyle um you might really like a place but 
since you're committed to, I guess, a nomadic lifestyle, I guess nothing is permanent. I don't know what kind of effect that would have. But it might be nice, you know, once I retire, just so I can get traveling out of my bucket list. So. No, I really like that answer, you know, and I appreciate you didn't just go with the flow almost. Like, I appreciate that that was... You you kind of went against the question with a really good reason. Like, that's something that human beings have had to live with. Generally, even through historical lenses, you'll see people living in huts. I suppose oftentimes you will see nomads throughout history. But, like, if you look back as far as even uh, Egypt, one of the oldest known civilizations they had structures that were permanent right so it is kind of part of us to be in one place for extended periods of time so that's kind of an interesting concept that you kind of just opened my eyes to under the circumstance that i love sailing i've always wanted to have a sailboat that i could just go somewhere with yeah and it's like as with many things, when you're driving or when you're on the move for a long time, it does get wearing. You do get tired. Yeah, I did go on a really long sailing trip over the summer. It was actually across your homeland of Long Island. Oh, yes. Yeah, and it was. we were sailing for 24 hours straight. Oh, wow, okay. And I slept for probably about eight of it. <laughs> Which is crazy. We started at 3 in the morning. We ended at about 1. In the, it wasn't quite 24 hours. We ended at about 1 in the morning. But, um, yeah, it was. I was asleep throughout the day. We, I was awake and pretty alert during the nighttime because I was pretty crazy. Yeah. It was so dark, and we were really worried about running aground. But once we, were on the, yeah. once we were on the move, I was kind of almost so relaxed that I fell asleep, which could be a hazard on its own, right? Because you'll see... Like if you've ever seen a lot of sailing survival movies, people get hit by oh, like freighters, yeah. right? When they're falling asleep, so that's always part of the danger. Okay, one of uh, the questions I expect to ask everybody, whoever comes on my podcast, do you believe in aliens? <laughs> um, do I believe in aliens. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, it's, uh, it's likely, right, that they're there, that's what I want to say, um, what was it, I think I was thinking about this recently, um, what is it, isn't there like a theory of infinite universes right and it's like the universe is so big that every possible combination of atoms has to have happened at least once right um i guess in the lifetime of the universe um so at at least at one or one other point there had to have been a living being like me, almost exactly like me, right? So I guess that counts as an alien. That's crazy. Right? right? I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> that was harder to follow, but I actually, I think I see right. where you're coming from. Yeah. Like, so That's ex- it would have been very similar or to almost you. identical to me, yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Do you, um, I think I remember hearing a quote. I, I do plan on having a quote of the day at the end of this podcast, and I don't remember who said the quote that I'm about to say. I will look it up, and I'll probably make it more official by the yeah. end of the podcast, but it was. There's either two options. There either is life other than us, or there isn't life other than us. And both are equally as terrifying. I don't, I don't think it was, yes. I don't think it was Einstein. Yeah, but I think that's but, a, uh, I think the concept stands. Like, I mean, we, either we find somebody and they probably won't look like us in some way. Right, yeah. And that could be kind of cre- creepy, you know, I'll say it. Or we don't find anybody ever and we were the only civilization that never got wiped out by a meteor, which is lonely. It's kind of a lonely point of view. Like, it'd be kind of nice to have buddies who are... Right. Who could we could relate to, who we could share... I think sharing history with would probably be one of the most rewarding aspects of finding a a different life form in the expanse. Yes. Um... My question to you would be, other than sharing history, is what do you think you'd like to learn from an alien civilization? Learn from an alien civilization. Hmm. Maybe... I don't know. I guess maybe what they're definition of the afterlife is maybe i don't know i mean i don't like i feel like the obvious answer is like their technology oh that's um, yeah that's a great answer i mean yeah, yeah techn- i think one interesting thing might be just how they do math because it should be the same it should be exactly the same as our math right so that might be one way to just see who's more advanced and if they're able to do like you know, crazy types of math that we don't know yet. That perhaps that could be something that be like the uh, universal like measurement competition, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, measuring different lengths of of uh, body parts. Math. No, math. yeah, math. Yeah, yeah math. Yeah. Like, we'll probably cut that out, but <laughs> but yeah, like yeah, I mean, yeah. it would be kind of embarrassing if well, they they I mean, likely they'd discover us if their math was more developed than ours just under the circumstance that it kind of flows down your generally your math is good and then transports to kind of like your physical theories it transports to your engineering theories mm-hmm. i don't know yeah that's kind of a, a relatively agreed upon concept okay no i really like that uh thanks so much for answering that i was a i'm glad you talked about it in fact the afterlife was cool the theories was also cool but yeah you know, there's always going to be probably different opinions on what the afterlife is, and you just kind of have to experience right. one day. Are there even similarities? Right? That would be kind of cool. That would yeah. be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any questions for me, Safer? Um, did you have dinner yet? No, I didn't have dinner yet. Well, go do that. Thank you, Mommy. <laughs> I'd like to give a big thank you to Safer. Sujadin.
Yeah, Safer T. Yeah, Safer T. His last name can be difficult for somebody with a small tongue like me. Other than that, um, as for quote of the day, I think because we kept up, what did it say? It says, uh, don't take life too seriously. Okay, cool. Yeah, so Safer has an electronic box above the sink, and it had a quote of the day. The quote of the day was, don't take life too seriously. Did it have who who said it? No. But okay, it was an unknown author. Likely a lot of people have said yeah. My friend Steve said that. It was Safer's friend Steve said it as well. But... Yeah, um, what I think we can all appreciate is, yeah, I mean, life is short, and if you take it too seriously, you'll have a lot less fun, which I think we can all relate to. I th- Maybe we've all kind of run into situations where you're doing a group project, and maybe if it wasn't even a technical group project, maybe it was more of like a gym class, and it was a team sport, and your team just couldn't hack it. You guys probably might not have been as good as the other team. And if you're really putting in all the effort and you thought, oh my gosh, guys, if we just put in a little bit more effort, we'll really get there and then we'll win. And, you know, if it doesn't happen, it kind of ruins the day for you because you were so focused on winning and maybe you ruined the day for a couple other people because your attitude kind of put in a little too much effort. This is definitely something you should read the room with. I'm not saying it applies to everything. Maybe on a gym class specifically, it's very easy to apply. I think maybe if it's work-centric, it's a little bit harder to kind of find a good balancing act. Maybe in life with a with a partner, it's probably a little bit easier to kind of keep the line a little loose because hopefully you're not competing with your loved ones. That's always a pain. I did have a quote of the day that I thought I was going to use, um, but I guess I will save it for the next one. Thank you so much for listening. This is brought to you by Peter Karen and Safer T. This is Two Turkeys. Have a good night. <laughs>